Well, it's a Christian church, so I think it's fitting that we're going to look at Jesus again today. Um, we're in a series of sermons that we're entitling Seeing Jesus Through the Eyes Of, and we've tried to look through different people's eyes in the New Testament. Some are friendly eyes and loving eyes, and some are critical eyes, and some are hateful eyes. But we're trying to get all these different perspectives from the New Testament. Now, the order of our sermon, we started this in the fall. And uh, when we laid it out, we realized we were going upside down and backwards. Because as we, we start, we end up in the Advent season with the birth of Jesus. And probably we should have started in the Advent season and then ended in Easter season. But we're Baptists. You know, liturgical churches that have a church calendar, they think of these things. But Baptists, we stumble along. So what we did was we began with people at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. We looked at people he healed and the disciples that he called. And we're building now toward and beginning today, we're going to be looking at the events surrounding Jesus' death and resurrection. And then beginning in the first Sunday of Advent, we'll look at some of the people who met Jesus at his birth. Now, that may be backwards, but maybe we'll get some insight that we didn't have by looking at things chronological. So today we're going to see Jesus, or try to see Jesus, through the eyes of the wife of Pilate, Pontius Pilate, the governor, uh, the Roman governor in charge of Judea, Jerusalem at this time. Mentioned only once in the Bible, and she's not even given a name. And the one verse we're going to deal with is Matthew 17, 19. <clears throat> Beginning, uh, we're going to begin with verse 15, but we're going to focus on 19. Now, at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want to re me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Jesus Christ, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Now here's our verse. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much over him today in a dream. That's what we know about Pilate's wife. During the trial, only one person in the New Testament gospel accounts tried to intervene and save him, and that was Pilate's wife, a woman, a Gentile woman, probably a pagan woman, the wife of a Roman governor, the wife of the man who answered to the emperor, the wife of the man who had the authority to say yes or no to his crucifixion. Pilate and his wife are portrayed in a 19th century uh, painting by a French artist by the name of Tussaud. And uh, this is a, a, a loving wife and her husband. But if you translate that into modern 
movie, uh, the 2004 movie called The Passion of the Christ, uh, they look like this. Both of them are actual photographs, of course. But she, in both these pictures, is telling Pilate about her dream and warning him. But that's not what the text says. It says, she sent word to him. She sent word to him. And here's the background. Why was Pilate in Jerusalem? Normally, he was located at Caesarea on the Mediterranean coast. That's where he lived with his wife and some comfort. But during the Passover season, when a lot of Jews from all over the country and even other countries made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, there were a lot of people and potentially a lot of trouble. He made a temporary uh, headquarters in Jerusalem, and that's why he was there. A lot of people uh, argue about who's responsible for Jesus' death. And as we look at the, the story account in the various gospels, we see guilt on the part of the Jewish leaders, guilt on the part of the Roman authorities, guilt on the part of the average human people. It's basically everyone killed Jesus. Everyone rejected Jesus. But the authority, the power, ultimately, at this time, was in the hands of the Romans. And this man was in Jerusalem just for this kind of problem, an emergency like this coming up. Now, why his wife was with him is another story, because normally um, the wife of a high Roman official would not travel into a difficult circumstance. It probably indicates there was a particular devotion between them, that he wanted her there, that she wanted to be there. Uh, we're not sure about that. In fact, we're not sure about anything. But when we're not sure about the facts, we make up facts. So a sketchy history of, of Pilate's wife is filled in with all kinds of tradition in the early Christian writings. There is a pretty strong consensus that she was from an aristocratic family, and her name has come down. There seems to be a consensus around her name being Claudia, which was after one of the Roman Empire emperors. Excuse me. Excuse me. What did I do? Oh, that Claudia. Procula, is that your last name? Her name was Claudia Procula. <laughs> that is the, the name that tradition gave to her. And the belief is that she was a granddaughter of Emperor, Emperor Augustus. And uh, technically, therefore, was a Roman princess. She was a high-born person. But uh, her mother was a bit naughty. And uh, she, Julia, we know from Roman history, uh, was as unfaithful as she could have been during her time, and she was pretty much um, exiled by the Roman emperor until her death. And then her daughter, Claudia, uh, was accepted back as a kind of uh, um, questionable person, but she still had that high birth, and that gave her a marriage quality, okay? So her marriage to Pontius Pilate who was a social climber, 
and his own family come from lower class people but wanted to go someplace was marrying up if you will when he married uh, Claudia uh, Claudia Procula she was somebody but she was a damaged somebody now let's go back to the scripture we'll read a little farther to get the context beginning with verse 15 again now at the feast the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted and they had then a notorious prisoner named Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, now please notice that, the judgment seat was a, a particular uh, location, uh, elevated location that indicated he was not just being the governor at this time, but he was in a position of making a formal judgment, and this was a very important records were kept and so forth. And that's probably why his wife sent word, because she would not have been able to come into that place, which was reserved for important people like men. So um, when they had gathered, um, oh, I'm sorry, verse 19, for he knew it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much over him today in a dream. Now, the chief priests and the elders persuaded the people to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release to you? Certainly they're going to say, Jesus, but no, they didn't. They said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? His wife had already warned him. It already told him about the dream that she had. And uh, they all said, let him be crucified. He said, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he could do nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took some water, washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. Uh, and basically, after I do something wrong, I always wash my hands and say, I am innocent. And uh, then the people as a whole answered, his blood be on us and on our children. So he released Barabbas for them and after flogging Jesus, handed him over to be crucified. She had a disturbing dream that made her send a, a, an emergency message to her husband. This is an artist's impression of the dream. It's elaborate. You've got a, an angel whispering into, into her ear, and in the background, the scene of Jesus being prepared for crucifixion. And, and that possibly catches the drama of the moment. But the personal agony of the moment is something that only Claudia, excuse me, could, could feel and experience. We're going to ask her for a personal testimony afterwards. <laughs> and, uh, and she described it as suffering much. I have suffered much. What, what, what kind of 
angst was she going through? What kind of a, a tension was she going through? I can tell you that we don't know the content of the dream. The interpretations of the dream have been all over the place. In uh, the, the medieval Western church, Western means in the Roman Catholic world, in, 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 there are a lot of stories about the dream coming from the devil. Now, we don't know. This picture shows an angel. But they, they taught that the dream came from the devil, and the devil was uh, trying to keep Jesus from going to the cross because if he went to the cross, he would descend into hell and release many prisoners, and Satan would lose all his customers. So, uh, so generally, the dream was seen as a negative, whereas in the Eastern Church or the Orthodox tradition, uh, the dream was consistently seen as from God, and it was revealing the truth about Jesus, about who he is, and agonizing, her agonizing about uh, her husband's participation in the ex execution of this man. When she says, have nothing to do with him, and Pilate washing his hands, you can see his response to her desire to pull back from the moment of decision and to pull her husband back. It was, it was just becoming too much. And he wanted not be in the picture. I am innocent. I'm not. The crowd wouldn't let him get away. He was responsible. Now, as I indicated, uh, the, when you have very little about someone, um, there are a lot of people who fill in the blanks. So I've got to tell you, in the next few hundred years, there's all kinds of, uh, of stories that were written as part of the apocryphal gospels and other writings about um, Claudia Procula. And uh, both Origen and Tertullian, who were both second century uh, Christian scholars and are very dependable, they both uh, indicated that she converted to Christianity. And this is a strong tradition, an early tradition in the church. There are stories of her being a Christian influence in the world. There are some stories of uh, Pilate himself uh, converting to Christianity, but that's very narrow. Uh, the Ethiopian Orthodox Church has St. Pilate because they believe Pilate became a saint afterwards. But most traditions see Pilate as taking his own life and failing. But Claudia apparently converted to Christianity in this tradition, maybe she was halfway there. Maybe when she was sent that message to Pilate, maybe she was already a God-fearer. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. A person who was enamored of the one God of Israel, uh, but wouldn't convert to Judaism. Maybe she was already thinking about these things. Uh, we don't know, but um, there's a strong secondary belief that her conversion to Christianity came in that moment. Came when she looked at that whole awesome situation, realized how high the stakes are, and realized how personal 
all of this was. Remember, she said, I have suffered much in a dream. I have suffered much. And so I think there's a pretty good case for the fact that this moment in her life might have been her own uh, time of finding faith in God. At any rate, <clears throat> the Eastern Orthodox Church, most Orthodox churches in various parts of the world, Orthodox versus Catholic, you know that Catholic is mostly Western Europe and the Eastern part is mostly Orthodox. And uh, most Orthodox churches uh, recognize her as Saint Procla or Saint Procula. And I was amazed when I started studying this, you know, and I was already thinking of, we're out of order, maybe this should have been done around Easter, Good Friday time. I found out that was St. Procla's day on the Eastern Orthodox calendar. It, it's, now you've got to understand the Julian calendar. Uh, they they uh, refigured it. So there's a new calendar and an old calendar. You can look this up if you want. And on the old calendar, St. Procla day in the church, the Orthodox church is October 27th. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's the old calendar. The new calendar is November 7th. So I was pretty close either way. Um, Saint Procla, just inspiring um, to wonder what, what that meant, what that meant to her, what that moment meant to her. And you know what, I stumbled trying to figure out more about this, and I came upon a poem which I'd, I'd like to share with you. And it's a poem by Charlotte Bronte. Uh, those of you who are, uh, it's called Pilot's Wife's Dream. Those of you who are masterpiece theater nuts um, know Charlotte Bronte from Jane Eyre, but you know, uh, Charlotte is just one of the three Bronte sisters who all wrote. Emily wrote Wuthering Heights and Anne wrote they all wrote um, very well. Do you know what the tragedy of all of these sisters, and they had three other siblings, two sisters and a brother. There were six in the family. Charlotte lived longer than any of them, and she lived to be 38. They all died in their 30s or earlier. And yet, what, what genius there was there in that short time. Their father was an Anglican minister, so they knew a lot about the Christian faith, and there's a lot of spirituality behind their writings. Um, in this long, very long poem, 126 stanzas, so I'm not going to, I mean 26 stanzas of six, uh, uh, six lines each, so that makes 126. Um, but she describes uh, a very disturbed sleep that Pilate's wife was having. And, and, and Bronte goes into the kinds of thoughts she imagines a woman would have, being torn in many ways. She presents, uh, and probably is Charlotte Bronte's own bias against men, but she presents a bad relationship with her husband and she doesn't have much respect for him and all of that. But when she gets down to the moment when this dream happens to her, 
I want to read some verses to you, some lines from this poem, uh, beginning in, uh, uh, with this. What is this Hebrew Christ? To me unknown his lineage, doctrine, mission. Yet how clear is godlike goodness in his actions shown. How straight and stainless is his life's career. Now this is Pilate's wife speaking through Charlotte Bronte. The ray of deity that rests on him in my eyes makes Olympian glory dim. That is the gods of the Greeks and Romans just seem to be very dull compared to the glory of Christ. Part clouds and shadows, glorious sun appear. Part mental gloom, come insight from on high. Dusk, dawn in heaven, still strives with daylight clear. The longing soul doth still uncertain sigh. Oh, to behold the truth, that sun divine, how doth my bosom pant, my spirit pine. This day time travails with a mighty birth. Interesting poetry. She, she's giving birth to something. Her, her bosom pants, her spirit pines, and she's travailing with a mighty birth. And, and I think as we see this, the birth is the birth of faith that's coming to Pilate's wife. This day, truth stoops from heaven and visits earth. Ere night descends, I shall more surely know what guide to follow, in what path to go. I wait in hope. I wait in solemn fear. The oracle of God, the soul, true God, to hear. And the line that jumped out to me was that next to last line, I wait in hope, I wait in solemn fear. Think of your life experiences when decisions face you and the choices you can list, the pros and cons and so This is a different kind of choice. The stakes are so much higher. The stakes are hope, or fear. I'm torn between hope and fear, says Pilate's wife. So today's uh, focus, seeing Jesus through the eyes of Pilate's wife, here's how I interpret, having read all of this, what Pilate's wife was going through and sharing with her husband. Claudia Procula had this unnerving dream, it left her unsettled. And it was all about this person, this strange man, who was the focus of so much hatred and love, so much evil and good. Everything was dynamic. The stakes were so high. She wanted to be somewhere else. I wish I were back on the coast in Caesarea. Husband, don't have anything to do with this. Caught between attraction and repulsion. Double-minded, 
torn between hope and fear. It's a space of ultimate drama when, an, when a person meets God personally. Now, now I want to I focus that because we're not conscious of that sometimes. It all seems so casual to us. The moment, the moment of your personal faith coming alive was a dramatic moment, a traumatic moment, caught between hope and fear. Because if all of this is true, if this man is who he claims to be in faith in the church claims him to be, then how I respond to him means everything. But, but if it's not true, then I'm, I'm, I'm being deceived. I'm, I'm totally lost. When I'm in the presence of God and I say, wait, this is the God of the universe I'm confronting. That's fear. I want to run. But at the same time, I realize that's my only hope. And I believe Pilate's wife teaches us that when we truly meet Christ, that we are in the moment. This was the moment of her life. She was suffering much because of him. She wanted to run, but she also had hope, as Charlotte Bronte pointed out. The decision to embrace hope in spite of fear is the decision to accept Christ as God's gift of love. It, it, it's scary because it demands so much of us. It demands we look at life in, in a way that's upside down. To what we've been used to but it is also our only hope embracing hope in spite of fear you know it reminded me of a hymn that we sing it's actually in our hymnal number 475 called once to every man and nation comes the moment to decide once to every man and nation I, I had to remind myself, I think I researched this once before, but this, this hymn is based on a poem by James Russell Lowell, and you will see Lowell listed as the, the writer of the words. But it's part of a much longer poem. And the poem that James Russell Lowell wrote in, 19, in 1848 was called The Present crisis. And the present crisis was the crisis that was leading to the Civil War. Lowell was an abolitionist. And he was also a government employee. He was not just a poet. He worked as an ambassador for the government of the United States. But he saw everything ready to explode around slavery. And this whole poem if you read the longer version of it, it begins with slavery. I think slavery is the first word, and it talks about chapters of slavery in American history. He talks, goes back to the Mayflower, and he goes through all sorts of things. And, uh, and he says, 
once to every man, woman, and nation comes a moment to decide. In the strife of truth and falsehood, for the good or evil side, some great cause, God's new Messiah offering each the bloom or blight, and the choice goes by forever, twixt, twixt that darkness and that light. It shouldn't be surprising when you read this poem that the present crisis, the title of the poem, was the inspiration for the NAACP to develop the title of their uh, journal, The Crisis. And Dr. Martin Luther King quoted from this poem a great deal. The crisis of America's soul. He saw other people were trying to say, it's not going to come to war. He saw 15 years before the Civil War broke out that it was going to come to war. And it was a crisis around the soul of our nation. Well, once to every person and nation comes a moment to decide. So what about our moment? You know, a lot of people uh, have questioned whether, you know, it's obvious that young people are drifting away from the church. What Claudia is the youngest person here today. Um, but are we, is the gospel message relevant to young people today? And, and how do we communicate that message? And I have come to the place that it's not a matter of a new way of presenting the gospel or arguing for the faith. What we have to recognize is that every person is, is in a crisis. They, they, they try to avoid it. They try to wash their hands of it. But they are confronted with a crisis of who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? When I, I see that in, in, in the crazy texts on social media and all the fads that seem so weird to older people, it's all part of that. It's all part of it. And it's like a, a, a bunch of young Claudia Proskulas are, are, are going through that moment to decide. On the other side, maybe they'll be saints as they stand between hope and fear. As we stand between hope and fear, the moment to decide. Maybe you've been casual about all this. There's nothing casual about it. And when all of a sudden Claudia woke up to that, she wanted to run for cover, but she also wanted to run to him between hope and fear. Our Lord, we pray that you will help us to recognize that these 
moments are what life is all about. That our discovery moments are designed by you and they're, they're prepared and we are led to them and that you equip us to deal with them but help us not to ignore them or avoid them or wash our hands. Lord, we ask that you will help us to stand when the moment comes on the right side in our lives, in our nation, in issues of the world that we're facing today, first and foremost in our personal relationship with you as our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.